All right, I think a good place for us to start as we uh, enter into a book, and I'm one of those pastors that I actually enjoy, and I uh, maybe even I would say prefer going through books of the Bible, and I just love the, the progression and unpacking of God's treasured word and, uh, and his word to us that he gave us for our benefit and our profit. This is a word that he has written not so that he can remember what he said, amen, but this is a word that he gave to us so that us, we, his people can remember what and who he is. And so uh, as we go into Titus, I think it's good to start off by just even asking the question, who is Titus and, and who is, uh, who, who is he, he, he addressing here? Who is the author here? And so we'll begin by saying this, that the author of this book, in fact, is not Titus, but a guy named Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is writing to a guy named Titus, who is a Gentile, not a Jew, but a Gentile convert in Apostle Paul's um, uh, uh, journey and his ministry. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, if you guys have your Bible, today's going to be one of those good messages, I think, that you can follow along in the scriptures yourself. But in Titus 1, 4, here's how Paul addresses him. He says, to Titus... My true child in a common faith. And what he's saying here is that he's not saying that, that Titus, um, uh, you didn't know this, but you're actually my son. He's not trying to, you know, he's not trying to say you're my biological son uh, out of nowhere. What he's saying is that he considers Titus one of like his spiritual sons. You know, if you guys read through the book of Acts and, and if you've, you know, been in the church for some time, if not, you, uh, you, what you need to know about Apostle Paul is that he had incredible ministry influence, incredible gospel impact uh, in his time and in his life. And so there was a lot of converts, Jews and Gentiles, coming to the gospel, coming to know Jesus because of Apostle Paul's ministry. And even though he had a lot of converts, he actually, when you look at his life, he had a few men. He really poured himself uh, more deeply into uh, guys like Timothy, which is why we have books like First and Second Timothy. But then also there was a guy named Titus. He poured himself into Titus, and he says, my tr- uh, uh, I consider you know, my true son and the common faith. What he's saying is that he considers himself uh, um, kind of like a spiritual father to Titus, and he entrusts Titus now with pastoral duties and pastoral ministries. You can say he's kind of passing on the torch to Titus. And in, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, this, it's just kind of actually one long sentence and introduction of Paul, and what he's trying to do is really he's trying to uh, tell Titus, you know, or to Titus, my true son, um, in the common faith, not just, not really so that Titus can go home and be like, man, I feel good about that. Like, I, I was wondering where we stood, and I'm, you know, it's not for his, like, you know, self-esteem. What, what he's doing here in writing to Titus and saying, this is Titus, to Titus, my true son, he's actually authenticating Titus and his ministry duty and his ministry uh, um, mission um, so that the people under Titus's watch, under the care and leadership of Titus, they would know that Titus is a man that's trustworthy as accredited by Paul himself, who says, I'm a doulos, a servant of Christ, of God. And so Paul's intent um, to writing to Titus is so that Titus, it says in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, all right? He says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, he says, 
uh, to further the faith of God's elect, to further the faith, there's progression there, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, not for just head knowledge and not just so that we can say we know some theology now, but rather to the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I'm not making that up. That's in verse 1, opening verse. So Paul's purpose here is very clear, right? He's writing to Titus, giving Titus a mission, a, a ministry work, um, so that he can put what remains into order, appoint uh, elders in every town. But his purpose is to further the faith of God's people. Now, I think we would all say Paul is, a, in the Christian circle, a very um, prominent figure. You could even say that he's kind of like semi-famous in the Christian circle. But when you look at life, the life of Paul, you can see how he ended his life too, that Paul was never in it for his fame, Right? So he doesn't do gospel ministry for his fame. He does gospel ministry for their faith. He says to further, to progress, to grow, to nourish the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Not so they can go around the city of Chicago saying, I know more than other people. But so that that knowledge of the truth, God's truth, permeates and goes from their head to their heart that leads to a godly life. So here's what you need to do, Titus. Put in order what was left unfinished. Meaning there was gospel message proclaimed. There was a gospel mission happening. And there was gospel movement happening. People were coming to Christ. But what he's saying is it's not finished. Why? Because you can have gospel message, gospel mission, gospel movement. But without gospel maturity, it's not complete. What he's saying is it's left unfinished. And so here's how you complete the work. Here's how you allow it to now grow. He's done the foundation work, but here's how it grows. He's saying appoint elders in every town. Paul's heart, his pastoral heart, the the spirit of God in him is, is leading him to write this to Titus with the heart of ensuring, confirming, And making sure that there is vitality in the faith of God's people in this place called Crete. That they are not merely uh, listening to the gospel message. But they are by their life living out their gospel message. The problem here is that um, in this uh, island of Crete where Titus has been left behind... This is written about 65 A.D. or so, and now, um, you know, people have come to the faith because they've heard the gospel message. There was mission happening. There was movement happening, and, and yet Crete was not naturally known for uh, to have godly people. Uh, you know, and I would probably say that if you think about your hometown or where we are in Chicago, I would think that most of us would say that, yeah, I don't know if I grew up in a city or a town or a state that, that, can, that I think is godly. I think, I think there's so much more gospel work to be done in every city, right? And so, but in the island of Crete, um, they, were, they weren't even just like lukewarm. They were, they were actually known to be a very ungodly people. But here's the thing. They didn't even know it. Like, they don't even know that it's that bad because otherwise they would turn from it. They were just, it just became who they were. And so, so Paul actually even quotes one, of, uh, one prophet that actually is from that island, from their people. And he says, this is what this prophet is saying about his own people. That Cretans are always liars, right? Not just once in a while, always, always liars. 
Like these aren't guys that you want to be friends with, right? Evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Paul's not saying that about himself or, or he's not saying that from his own judgment. He's saying these are, this is what your own prophets are saying about um, your own people. They were considered, uh, they weren't just considered Cretans. They were known as lying Cretans because lying was just kind of like constantly on their lips. It was habitual for them. And so if you were in that day, told someone, hey, I'm actually, I I grew up in Crete. I'm from, like, you you could probably say, some of you might say, I'm from Chicago. And and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. But but if you were living in that time and you say, I'm from Crete, they might not, they might not receive that that way. They might, they might jump to judgment and say, man, you must be a liar, an evil brute, a lazy glutton. And with that, what happened was, you have these people that, that grew up in that culture, that secular culture, that you know, ungodly, um, you know, kind of a society where they don't, they don't, they don't have a picture of godliness, and and then you come to the faith, and you have, and it's mixed in with all of this cultural embedded stuff that you grew up with, and then you have these Cretan Christian teachers, so-called, that are teaching what they believe is is the word, but they're using it with with without integrity, and they're using it for dishonest. Gain, and so you have these Cretan teachers with unsound teaching, uh, um, uh, uh, unsound doctrine, and for dishonest gain. And in light of that, Paul is writing to Titus, and it kind of, kind of, in a sense, to say, Titus, it's time for the church to rise up. It's time for the church to not to not just try to be someone elite, but for the church to be the church. And when the church can be the church, when the church actually not only receives the gospel, but starts to impact their very life, their daily living, what's going to happen, Titus, is that the church is going to sh- start to shine uh, as a beacon of hope and a light in the island of Crete, where those on the outside looking into the church would say, wow, you guys look different. That, that's not something of our people. Where do you get that kind of life? Where do you get that kind of drive? Where do you get that kind of love? Where do you get that kind of joy? Where do you get that kind of forgiveness? Where do you get that? Like, where do you get that? And and so Paul is in charging Titus, develop leaders in the church who can model that for the rest of the body so that as they go about their daily living, the island of Crete will not only hear the gospel, but they can see it. They can see what the gospel can do with the life that's been touched. So Paul is saying, Titus, um, appoint elders. And Paul's heart here is that the church would exemplify a Christian life more so than a Cretan life. You know, it's, I think it's true that just by living where you are, just by us living in Chicago, just by us being where we are, without even knowing it, we, uh, in many ways, are being discipled, or I would say, made into the image of that which where we live. People in LA, let me tell you, they don't look like us, or you. Maybe they look like me. <laughs> people in LA look different from people in the Midwest. I was in Saugatuck, Michigan, about a week ago, and I don't think they've ever seen an Asian. Like I stuck out. Like, I could tell I stuck out. Like, like they, they, they just, uh, you know, no one asked for me for an autograph. I wasn't, like, famous to them. But I can tell, like, I don't know. Maybe it's just, it's just, my, maybe it's just my own perception. But I, but I felt eyes on me. Like, I looked around, and my wife noticed that there, there isn't one other Asian in this town. We stuck out. And I think that church is, 
the people of God who have received the gospel, who have Jesus in them, living in the spirit of God in them, I think we ought to stick out. I think we ought to look a little bit different, maybe even much different, so that they are noticeable, so that the gospel is noticeable, not just in word, but in deed, not just in proclamation, but in practice. So Paul is interested. This is why Philip Towner, in his commentary, he says, far more evident in this statement here in verse 1 through 5 of purpose is his concern to nourish believers that allows their existence in Christ all right, that's you and I as believers, right? Their existence in Christ to be a powerful interaction between faith and action. We don't want to just have action. That's legalism. And we don't want to just have faith and say we don't need action because that's James says that's dead faith. But a powerful interaction with faith and action where it works together, where faith is impacting our action and our action is testifying to our faith. What he's saying here is that that when it comes to people who say they have received the gospel, salvation and godliness are inseparable. You can't, you can't tear those apart and say, I'm a Christian. I believe in the good news of the gospel. I've been saved, but now I can live however I want. And I would say, what gospel are, do you have? What Bible do you, do you read? Because the, the Bible that I read, even in Titus, It says that when someone has received the gospel, the knowledge of the truth, what? Verse 1, leads to godliness. So the gospel message gives way to gospel maturity. And if the gospel is to continue to go forth and draw people to Jesus, not only in Crete 2,000 years ago, but here in Chicago, then Christians must look different than Cretans. Christians must look different than Chicagoans. And it begins, I believe, much with the leaders. Not all of it's on the leaders, but it begins and has a lot of effect on uh, the kind of leaders that we have in the church. Paul says it. He says, appoint elders. Paul's plan is for the glory of God and for the good of Crete, for the good of Chicago, for the good of our church, is that we in the churches appoint godly elders. And this is not something new in Titus. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, a lot of times, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard Christians or yourself. I've, I've said this to myself before. You ever read through the book of Acts? And you see all the the mission, you see the movement, incredible thousands of people coming to Christ. And you you ever wonder, like, I wish we were were more like the book of Acts. You ever said that? I know I've said that as a pastor. I wish we were more like the book of Acts. I, I I have yet to hear a pastor say, I wish we were more like the book of Titus. Maybe I can be the trendsetter. I wish we were a church that looked more like the book of Titus. Amen. That's a good place to say amen. Amen by myself. Okay. For now. But I wish we were, wish we could see that it's not just about seeing God. See, what the exciting thing about church planting is that, is that the gospel message is proclaimed to a lot of new people. And the exciting thing about church planting is that the gospel mission is, is there. People are invested. And what's exciting about church planting is that you're going to see gospel movement. And even in our church, when you see, there's tons and tons of people. We can stay here for hours talking about the people that have been so blessed and changed, transformed. People that were, were, did not know God, that have come to know God, that have now the hope of eternal life with God. That's incredible. But that's unfinished. 
The Bible always leads us from the message to maturity. And when I see the book of Acts, I want to remind us that even in the book of Acts, you don't just see the message or the mission or the movement. In the book of Acts, you also see maturity. In the book of Acts chapter 6, you see the appointing of the first deacon. And then you go on to Acts 14 and you see Paul and Barnabas. And what the Bible says is that they have preached the gospel. They have strengthened the souls of the people there. They have made disciples. They encourage them to continue in their faith because of persecution. And then it goes on to say that they, Paul, appointed elders in every church. And with fasting and prayer, they committed them to the Lord. And even in the book of Acts, what we see is that the gospel message leads to mission, leads to movement, but also leads to maturity. So here's what I see. Here's what I see. Where there is gospel movement, there needs to be gospel maturity. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen by myself and one other person. Where there is gospel movement, there needs to be gospel maturity. Where you find the gospel message, you will also find gospel mission, you will also find gospel movement, but you need gospel maturity so that you can guard that message, guard that mission, guard that movement in the church and going forth. If you don't have that, here's what we lose out on. You compromise the message, you compromise the mission, and you compromise the movement. And so it is the maturity that actually enables the good stewardship of the good news. It's it's the character of godly leadership that that enables over long term the gospel message, the mission, and the movement to continue to happen. So the question is not what do I look for in leaders as as just like, you know, a lot of times what we do is we, we... We'd like to vote on elders or vote on people that we, it's like a popularity contest. Well, I, I like that elder. I like him maybe even more than, we, we, sometimes we have our favorite elders, right? And so it's not about what do I look for in elders or leaders. The question is what does God look for, amen? What does God look for? That's a good question to ask. Paul gives us a list. He doesn't say just take a guess, but he actually gives us a list of what to look for. So in verse 5, he says, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. Okay, here's three things that, uh, that I'm going to go through real quick here. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. To, if anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, and children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, above reproach. And what that means is that simply doesn't mean that this person is perfect, but this l- person lives a life that's in, in, in many ways blameless. You look at them and you actually want to speak more highly of them. There's not a lot of caution flags or red flags and in uh, it's not, not just you, but overall in the body of Christ, there's a sense that with this person, man, there is, this person is respected, highly esteemed. Um, Alexander Strzok in his book called Biblical Eldership says that it's one who is unaccused, the one whose character or conduct is free from any damaging uh, moral or spiritual accusation. Again, it doesn't mean that this person has got his whole life together, never makes a mistake, right? Because no one's like that, and no one will be an elder then. But saying when you think about them, there aren't any grounds for accusation or corruption in their speech, in their behavior or character, in their public life or their pub- uh, private life. The great reformer John Calvin, he says... Um, 
that this is not a man free from every fault, but a man of unblemished reputation. It's above reproach. And it says this is, this is someone who is, who is a husband of one wife, right? And it's not talking specifically about numbers as to opposed to like two or three or more wives. It's not a matter of polygamy or remarriage. Um, and it's not suggesting that elders have to be married. Otherwise, Otherwise, then, then, then it would exclude single men with godly character and readiness just because that they are not yet married or have children. But what the saying is, it's emphasizing the emphasis is on his faithfulness, this particular person's faithfulness to his wife. A husband of one wife, what he's saying is, is this man fully devoted to his wife or is it like he's give, he gives, you know, half of his attention to his wife and then half attention to another mistress? Or, or does this person give himself to his wife as, or at least there's a sense in which this is how he desires to live as Christ gave himself to the church, as it says in Ephesians 5, to the husbands. Um, it's about his character. It's about his responsibility as a husband. And what you notice about the first three, three qualities about you as a church, we as a church ought to look for in leaders is look at the home. How are they in the home? Are they above reproach? Are they a husband of one wife? And, and the third one is are they ch- have children or children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or uh, insubordination, right? The NIV translates it as a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And I'm like, oh man, wild? Like sometimes I even call Benjamin wild. Like that, and then that probably disqualifies me. Then wild, by wild, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, like high energy and loud and likes to run around and, 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 and break things around the house. But by wild, it's talking about rebellious spirit, rebellion who, who doesn't follow in the footsteps and the faithfulness of the Father. Children are believers. There are children who believe. Now, this is where we, I, I want to give you guys a quick note on and give you some teaching on, rather, because I think we need to clarify what that means. It doesn't mean that if you are um, an elder candidate or so, that, that if you have children, that they must have saving faith. It doesn't talk about belief as a, in terms of the saving belief or saving faith. The Greek word belief here is important to know because this one has a range of meaning uh, from faith, uh, from belief to faith, uh, faithful or faithfulness. So, so what this is actually saying is that children ought to display not so much saving faith because, for example, if your kids are like two, three, four years old, you don't even expect them to know what saving faith is, right? They can't comprehend the fullness of the gospel. And so, um, but what you can see in maybe a two, three, four-year-old is a sense of faithful or faithfulness. I would say, are, do you see your, that child uh, with the desire to follow in the footsteps of their father because that father has such character and, and blameless above reproach and loves uh, the mom that, that, that this, this, this particular child sees the goodness and the faithfulness of the father and desires to walk in that direction. In other words, it's saying that, that, that does the child represent a divided home or a unified home? I think it's saying a lot about um, is the father, is that man one who actually trains his child to know God? 
And it's not about, again, saving faith because then that would put the work of salvation on man and that's only the work of God. No one can save you and no one can save me apart from God himself, right? So what it's saying is this. Is there something in your child and what they believe that, that represents what their father believes? So for example... You know, my son is four years old, right? I have a toddler. I, I don't know if he's a toddler now, but he's four years old. And, you know, at four years old, he doesn't, have, he doesn't comprehend what theology and, and the saving faith, but, but even at four years old, by now, he knows, he knows how to pray. He knows what to pray. He knows that you don't pray to uh, some random name, but he prays to God. He, sometimes he says, God the Father, sometimes Jesus, right? He prays to God, and we've told him over and over again. We're telling him the story, a narrative that Jesus, Jesus loves you. And you know what Benjamin does not do? He doesn't sit there folding his arms and doesn't say, Dad, I don't know if I believe that. Dad, I don't know. The latest, the latest article, the latest, you know, uh, secular uh, uh, commentator says, I don't know. Though you can translate the Bible in many different ways. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. I don't know if I'm ready to accept that. He doesn't do that. You know what he says? He just, he's just more curious. He says, why? Why? Sometimes too much. Pray for me. But like, why? He, he receives an understanding of what I tell him. I think that's reflective of the father. He trusts that his dad is what he's telling him is good and true. You ever notice that with little kids that, that they just kind of believe what, they, what their father tells them, what their parents tell them, what their, their greatest influences tell them. They, just, they, they don't question it. They, don't have, they may not have a saving faith, but they have a simple faith. They believe something. The question is if you're a man and you're a candidate and you got little children, young children, you, you got you to gotta look at their children and wonder, what is it that they believe right now? And they may not be saving faith, but is it following in the footsteps of the Father? Right? Now, if you got children that are older, that's a different story. If you got children that are of age where they can actually are old enough to understand the gospel, comprehend it, you know, then, then the next part says, make sure they're not, they're not you know, the kind of children who, who are, are wild and, um, up, you know, accused of debauchery and, and insubordination. What that means is you, you don't want kids that are so far from what the father believes, living so far and almost rebellious, almost as if, like, I will never do what my father does. I will never believe what my father believes. Here's why. Because what, what, what Paul, I think, to, he's saying to Titus is, is if you have a man like that, how can that man be entrusted with God's family if he has yet a lot of work to do in his family? What he's saying is perhaps that man ought to spend more time overseeing and managing and stewarding his own family before. It doesn't mean he can never be an elder. But before God entrusts him with his family. That's what he's saying. You got to look for these things, right? I have a pastor friend. He's a senior pastor. And he says that uh, one of the things that they do in their elder process, they actually not only interview the candidate, they interview the wife. And they interview the children. Ooh, ouch. Because you don't know what children will say, Right? Most of the time, they probably won't lie. They'll tell you how their dad is at home. Because how you lead your home says a lot about how you might lead the church. You guys, um, do you guys know the saying, what happens in Vegas? Say it with me. What happens in Vegas? Uh, don't, don't act like you don't know. Come on now. You, you, you act like you've never, you, you know, I don't know what he's talking about, you know. 
What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There's a saying, all right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But you know, when it comes to our faith and leadership in the church, um, that's not so. See, what happens in the home affects what happens in the church. You can't say, you can't say, hey, well, well you know, hey, what is, what is me uh, uh, taking on roles in the church and leadership in the church? What does that have to do with, how, you know, how I lead my children or how my children behave? Or how does that, what does that have to do with me being a husband? You know, and you might be tempted to say, well, well, what happens at home, that's my business. But I'm willing to serve God's church. But what happens at home is my business. I think that's reflective of a lot of character issues that still need to be worked out. I think what Paul is saying is, you know how you know someone's ready for church, for the church family, and, and leadership in the church family? Watch how they treat their family. Watch how they lead their family. I would say that, that perhaps, um, perhaps the, what you see in the family and the home may be one of the greatest markers of not only godliness, but readiness for how ready someone is to lead the family of God. And I want you to go on with me. Not only does it say, um, you know, above reproach, husband of one wife, children are believers and, and such. But verse 7, he, t- he takes a shift and he goes for, for an overseer, right, as God's steward. For an overseer as God's steward. That word overseer is interchangeable with the word elder. Overseer is actually pointing to uh, more of the function of the elder, saying the elder's function is oversight, to oversee. And notice that it doesn't say that elders are the owner of the church. Amen? It says elders are the overseers of the church. In other words, the church does not ultimately belong to the elders. That's good news. What it's telling us is that the church belongs to one person, the head of the body, Christ himself. Christ is always the good shepherd, always the chief shepherd, always the senior pastor. And uh, temporarily, as we walk through this life, God is entrusting us to be under the care of under-shepherds, and he's listing out, make sure that these are the kinds of things that you see as overseers, as God's steward or manager. What God is doing, guys, is giving these people his treasure. You guys ever had something or have something now that's a treasure to you? Like something materialistic? It could be something in your wallet right now. Something, you know, your keys, your, 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 your uh, uh, you know, something in your home, uh, something that you've had and that runs down in your family, maybe your car, whatever. And, and you ever um, had someone ask you if they can have it for a few days or borrow it? And you wonder, like, can I, like, I don't know, because I don't know if I can entrust you with such a treasured possession. So what this is saying is that God doesn't want to leave his church and his bride with just anyone. Because he's saying, the, the church is my bride. It's my treasured possession. He's saying, look for these qualities. And so he's, he goes on, right? He goes on in verse, um, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And then he goes on and he lists a few things here. A lot of these are just self-explanatory, so we won't go into every single one. But it says, to not be arrogant or quick-tempered, drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, right? He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. What he's saying is to, to not be arrogant is to, to make sure that person is more gentle, not stubborn, where you can't smell selfishness, you know? 
know, it's not overbearing. You don't get a sense that you just, he just has it his own way. Not quick to anger, right? It means that this person can uh, recognize their anger. It doesn't mean that they don't feel anger because then that's not even a human, right? right? But a human will feel anger, feel frustration. The question for that man is can they recognize it and can they control it? There's a great missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. He once said, my greatest temptation is to lose my temper over the slackness and inefficiency so disappointing in those whom I depended. Anybody been there before? You're like, ugh, right? It says, it is no use to lose my temper, only kindness. It says, but oh, it is such a trial. That actually encouraged me because I know I can lose my temper. I know that I get angry. The question is not do you get angry. The question is what do you do when you get angry? Look for men who can control their anger. Someone who's not a drunkard or violent, not addicted to much wine. Drunkard and violent go together. When a lot of men who are, get drunk and addicted to much wine and, and heavy alcohol or alcohol, just what happens a lot of times, that leads to physical violence. One leads to the other. Not greedy for gain. I think this is talking about in the context of maybe even Cretan teachers that were using the, the Bible or the gospel for their their own personal gain or monetary gain. He's saying make sure that this person has financial integrity in ministry, not pursuing dishonest gain, not pursuing fame, right, but to further, to see the progress and to grow the faith of the people. He goes on, he says, um, make sure they're hospitable, you know. That means, that means we ask the question, how are they with people, especially how are they with strangers, how are they with people that are so different from them? Are they inclusive? Are they kind? Are they gentle? I remember hearing in my, when I was at my old church in California, we had a newcomer and he came to me and I had a few minutes to chat with him and I introduced him to my associate pastor and my elder and we all got a chance to, uh, to know him a little bit and then we invited him out to lunch and, you know, we, you know, we kind of talked a little bit and, you know, he shared with us that he's unemployed right now and, you know, but we just wanted to, we're just glad to have him in our church and, you know, when he left, he told me, he said, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that this experience has been an incredible blessing to me because the other church that I was at, um, didn't, didn't feel as hospitable and, and welcoming. And I said, oh, you mean they didn't have a welcoming team? He said, no, 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 that's not. They had a welcoming team. He said, but when I went up to the senior pastor after service to say hello and introduce myself, he seemed very glad at first glance. And then he asked me the question, what do you do for work? And when he told them I was unemployed, he said he, he quickly saw the demeanor in his face change, and he was trying to cut the conversation so that he could talk to the next person. He walked away that church experience feeling like his worth was only dependent on whether or not he would actually profit the church with, with whatever it is that he had to offer. And leaders in the church ought not to judge people for their background, their life experiences, or even what they currently believe. We see them as God's beloved child. How are they with strangers? How are they hospitable? Are they a lover of good? Are they people that are eager to do what is good, eager to do what is beneficial towards other people? Are they self-controlled? What that means is that are they able to exercise restraint? You know, a lot of times we, we say, you know, you know Christians, we, we let God be in control. Amen. 
We don't want to control our careers. We don't control our lives. We don't control our families. We, we, leave a, we leave our lives in the hands of God. Amen. But you know there's one control that God tells us to have? It's self-control. It says have self-control. That's, that's actually good. Does that person exercise restraint? Is this person upright? Meaning, is this person a leader that is just, fair, inherently honest in dealing with people? Is this person holy? Doesn't mean that, you know, how thick is their Bible? Does this person have underlines and highlights in their Bible? Does this person have creases in their Bible? Because if not, they probably don't read it. They're not holy. It's not about the appearance of holiness, but to be holy is a condition of inward purity that has outward results. Inward purity that has outward results. And lastly, disciplined. Kind of like self-control that this person can exercise godly restraint based on a knowledge of God's will. This is Philip Towner in his commentary. Uh, exercise of godly restraint based on a knowledge of God's will. What kind of people do you want to lead your family? You probably want people like this that you can trust. I don't think the point of this is to go through every single one and nitpick and to see if there's a 10 on every single one of these, but to look at it maybe in a sense of the sum total. You say, man, does this person reflect the sum total of what this is saying in Titus 1? Is this a Titus 1 kind of man? Is this a Titus 1 kind of person? Is this person a man that is respectable, have, have integrity? And here's why. Because it says in verse, um, verse 9 here, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The messenger ought to reflect the message so that. says So, so have all these qualities, church, look at these qualities in your elders, in your leadership. Why? So that not only could there could be a model, but there can be an effectiveness and a credibility in teaching sound doctrine and also in giving rebuke to those who contradict it, right? So here's a couple things that I think Paul is trying to do here by listing these qualities. First is so that the church cannot be misled, to not mislead God's people, to not, but also to be able to withstand opposition um, to those that oppose the word and to try to lead people astray. But I think third, so that they can exhort believers. The leadership can exhort believers and nourish the body of Christ and refute opponents. Some of you guys might be there thinking to yourself, well, I don't really, I'm not interested in being an elder and I, I'm not even a man, so this doesn't even apply to me. And you might, be, you might be tempted to tune out, but here's what I know, what Bible says about us. What goes for the leadership goes for the rest of the church. The Bible says that we're one body, not separate. So what that means is the, uh, the health and the, um, the godliness of the elders and the body of Christ will ultimately affect the rest of the body of Christ. And so that affects every single one. And you know what's so astounding about Titus 1? It's not that these are for the elite. These are for 
every believer, this is specifically, you got to see this, make sure you see this when you affirm and appoint elders. But it's not saying that this is only for elders. These are qualities that the Lord God wants to develop in his church because we're one body. Why are there elders with these? So that the rest of the body can benefit. So that the rest of the body can have a model for what the message wants to bring us to. A life of godliness. God wants all the people, his people, to be a people whose character shines, that look different from the rest of the world. So this is for all of us. John Calvin goes on and he says that holding fast to the trustworthy word of God gives us two voices. He says one, to gather the sheep, and the other for driving away wolves. So look for, look for elders that represent these qualities. God is leading the church to say, this is what you look for. Paul is not interested in hierarchy, power dynamics. He's not talking about org charts. What he's talking about is character. You notice he's not even talking about competencies. You know, he's not talking about make sure they're they're business savvy so that they can run operations. He he doesn't talk about competencies. He's talking about character. He's saying look for character, not charisma. You know, they can speak well. They can have uh, a master's in divinity. They can be experienced. These elders can be wealthy. They can have a lot of great, uh, uh, um, you know, success in the business world or whatever it is. But God is saying to the church, look for character. Look for character. In other words, in these men, look for Christ. Look for Christ. So I ask us the question, what do you look for? What do you look for? What kind of leaders do you pray for? Do you look for leaders that will just listen to you? That'd be nice. Not what the Bible says. Do you look for leaders that will just agree with you? That'd be awesome. It's not what the Bible says. Do you look for leaders that are just easy to work with or just incredibly smart, business savvy, strategic? It's not what the Bible says. Do you look for someone who just has the appearance of a leader or just charismatic? Or do you look for character? See, when you have this kind of character, you know who it benefits? It benefits the person being matured because they get to see God's work in their lives. They know who they once were apart from God. It benefits the families, the child, the the wife, as they are cared for and loved for in a godly way. It benefits the faith of other believers in the body of Christ as they get to witness a model for gospel maturity. It benefits the glory of God and mission as the gospel goes forth in Crete, in Chicago, and to the ends of the uh, world, both in word and deed, in proclamation and practice. Godly elders who model godly lives for the rest of us Commend the gospel for the glory of God. And by knowing what God looks for, you know what the most important thing perhaps is? By knowing what God looks for, we know what God values. We know what God values. And you know what God is working. 
God is more interested in your character than your competency. He's interested in you becoming more and more like his son Jesus than you are with being strategic or smart or well-spoken. He's interested in your character. You know, as I read Titus, I know it's easy to think, man, this is just like so tedious, right? I know it was for me during this preparing this message. There's so many qualities here. It feels so tedious and a leader must be this, an elder must be this, an overseer must be this. But you know what I, what I, what I seem to, to have missed before that I see now is that if I take a step back, you know what I see? I see a God who is deeply in love with his church. I see a God who is, cares for his church. I see a God who says, I will do everything I can to nourish, to grow, and to protect my flock. Because I love them. This is a God who deeply loves his church. I think about as a parent, if I were to uh, have someone watch my son for a month or a year or years, I wouldn't just let anyone watch him. Would I, if you as a parent, would you let anyone just watch your son or child or daughter just because they can change diapers or cook a good meal? Or You probably want to know, can I trust them? Why would you ask that? Because you have a deep love for your child. Because you want more than a good breakfast. You want your child to have love. Here's what I notice about Titus 1. This is not just about the requirements. This is about who God is. It's about his heart. He loves the church. He loves the church so much that 2,000 years ago, friends, the father sent his only son. And he lived and he died a perfect life. Resisted temptation. Fully. And then he died on the cross. And he rose again. And he, he didn't just leave us alone, but he gave us his Holy Spirit. And the mission went forth, and the book of Acts, thousands came to know Christ. And then a church was born. Churches were born. Churches all over the world were born. And Church of the Beloved is here because we're part of this gospel movement. And there's many here who have come to know God because of the gospel message. And a lot of us are here because we're excited about gospel mission and gospel message and gospel movement. But I want to tell you, as Paul says to Titus, it is not finished until there's gospel maturity. God loves his children so much that he doesn't want his children to leave in the same state that they were years ago. He wants his child to grow from infancy to maturity. It'd be kind of cute if my son Benjamin was four years old for the rest of his life. Be kind of cute because, like, physically he's cute right now. But I know when he turns like 14, he ain't gonna be that cute. But I'd still rather have him mature. Because that's what a loving father wants. That's what a God wants for our church is to have gospel maturity. I close with this. You might think to yourself, man, there's a lot of qualities here, like. You know, self-controlled, holy, disciplined, upright. And you're thinking to yourself, like, man, that's kind of hard. I, man, good thing there are people like that in the church. You might think to yourself, I'm not, I'm not one of them, but I'm glad that there are some. Can I tell you something? Can I, can I share the good news? I want to share the gospel with you. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that no one was born this way. Nobody. Nobody even on the stage 
was ever born holy. Nobody was ever born disciplined. Nobody, just look at my son. Nobody was ever born upright, hospitable, lover of good, blameless. Nobody was ever born. You know what this testifies? Is that they were reborn. Is that through a life in, in Christ, a life with Christ, that those who were so unlike these qualities can now be transformed into the likeness of Christ. This tells me that for every person, no matter how far you think you are from these qualities, I want to tell you in Christ, when you're reborn, you can have a transformed life. Paul's heart is not just for elders to have these, but for the whole church to be on display for the world to see. So that when they hear the gospel message, they can also see a godly life. To the glory of God. Would you pray with me?